Chapter Two of An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation by Jeremy Bentham. Chapter Two Of Principles Adverse to That of Utility. If the principle of utility be a right principle to be governed by, and that in all cases, it follows from what has been just observed that whatever principle differs from it in any case must necessarily be a wrong one. To prove any other principle, therefore, to be a wrong one, there needs no more than just to show it to be what it is, a principle of which the dictates are in some point or other different from those of the principle of utility. To state it is to confute it. A principle may be different from that of utility in two ways. One, by being constantly opposed to it. This is the case with a principle which may be termed the principle of asceticism. Footnote. Ascetic is a term that has been sometimes applied to monks. It comes from a Greek word which signifies exercise. The practices by which monks sought to distinguish themselves from other men were called their exercises. These exercises consisted in so many contrivances they had for tormenting themselves. By this they thought to ingratiate themselves with the deity. For the deity, said they, is a being of infinite benevolence. Now a being of the most ordinary benevolence is pleased to see others make themselves as happy as they can. Therefore, to make ourselves as unhappy as we can is the way to please the deity. If anybody asked them what motive they could find for doing all this, Oh, said they, you are not to imagine that we are punishing ourselves for nothing. We know very well what we are about. You are to know that for every grain of pain costs us now, we are to have a hundred grains of pleasure by and by. The case is that God loves to see us torment ourselves at present. Indeed, he has as good as told us so. But this is done only to try us, in order just to see how we should behave, which it is plain he could not know without making the experiment, now, then, from the satisfaction it gives him to see us make ourselves as unhappy as we can make ourselves in this present life, we have a sure proof of the satisfaction it will give him to see us as happy as he can make us in a life to come. End footnote. 2. By being sometimes opposed to it and sometimes not, as it may happen. This is the case with another, which may be termed the principle of sympathy and antipathy. By the principle of asceticism, I mean that principle which, like the principle of utility, approves or disapproves of any action, according to the tendency which it appears to have, to augment or diminish the happiness of the party whose interest is in question. But in an inverse manner, approving of actions in as far as they tend to diminish his happiness, disapproving of them in as far as they tend to augment it. It is evident that any one who reprobates any the least particle of pleasure as such, from whatever source derived, is pro tanto a partisan of the principle of asceticism. It is only upon that principle, and not from the principle of utility, that the most abominable pleasure which the vilest of malefactors ever reaped from his crime would be to be reprobated if it stood alone. The case is that it never does stand alone, but is necessarily followed by such a quantity of pain, or, what comes to the same thing, such a chance for a certain quantity of pain, that the pleasure in comparison of it 
is as nothing, and this is the true and sole but perfectly sufficient reason for making it a ground for punishment. There are two classes of men of very different complexions by whom the principle of asceticism appears to have been embraced, the one a set of moralists, the other a set of religionists. Different, accordingly, have been the motives which appear to have recommended it to the notice of these different parties. Hope, that is, the prospect of pleasure, seems to have animated the former. Hope, the element of philosophic pride, the hope of honour and reputation at the hands of men. Fear, that is, the prospect of pain, the latter. Fear, the offspring of superstitious fancy, the fear of future punishment at the hands of a splenetic and revengeful deity. I say in this case fear, for of the invisible future fear is more powerful than hope. These circumstances characterize the two different parties among the partisans of the principle of asceticism, the parties and their motives different, the principle the same. The religious party, however, appear to have carried it farther than the philosophical. They have acted more consistently and less wisely. The philosophical party have scarcely gone farther than to reprobate pleasure. The religious party have frequently gone so far as to make it a matter of merit and of duty to court pain. The philosophical party have hardly gone farther than the making pain a matter of indifference. It is no evil, they have said. They have not said it is a good they have not so much as reprobated all pleasure in the lump. They have discarded only what they have called the gross, that is, such as are organical, or of which the origin is easily traced up to such as are organical. They have even cherished and magnified the refined. Yet this, however, not under the name of pleasure. To cleanse itself from the swords of its impure original, it was necessary it should change its name. The honourable, the glorious, the reputable, the becoming, the honestum, the decorum it was to be called, in short, anything but pleasure. From these two sources have flowed the doctrines from it which the sentiments of the bulk of mankind have all along received a tincture of this principle, some from the philosophical, some from the religious, some from both. Men of education more frequently from the philosophical, as more suited to the elevation of their sentiments, the vulgar more frequently from the superstitious, as more suited to the narrowness of their intellect, undilated by knowledge and to the abjectness of their condition, continually open to the attacks of fear. The tinctures, however, derived from the two sources would naturally intermingle, insomuch that a man would not always know by which of them he was most influenced, and they would often serve to corroborate and enliven one another. It was this conformity that made a kind of alliance between parties of a complexion otherwise so dissimilar, and disposed them to unite upon various occasions against the common enemy, the partisan of the principle of utility, whom they joined in branding with the odious name of Epicurean. The principle of asceticism, however, with whatever warmth it may have been embraced by its partisans as a rule of private conduct, seems not to have been carried to any considerable length when applied to the business of government. In a few instances it has been carried a little way by the philosophical party, witness the Spartan regimen, though then, perhaps, it may be considered as having been a measure of security, and an application, though a precipitate and perverse application, of the principle of utility. Scarcely in any instances, to any considerable length, 
by the religious, for the various monastic orders and the societies of the Quakers, Dumplers, Moravians, and other religionists have been free societies, whose regimen no man has been restricted to without the intervention of his own consent. Whatever merit a man may have thought there would be in making himself miserable, no such notion seems ever to have occurred to any of them that it may be a merit, much less a duty, to make others miserable, although it should seem that, if a certain quantity of misery were a thing so desirable, it would not matter much whether it were brought by each man upon himself or by one man upon another. It is true that from the same source from whence, among the religionists, the attachment to the principle of asceticism took its rise, flowed other doctrines and practices, from which misery in abundance was produced in one man by the instrumentality of another. Witness the holy wars, and the persecutions for religion. But the passion for producing misery in these cases proceeded upon some special ground. The exercise of it was confined to persons of particular descriptions. They were tormented not as men, but as heretics and infidels. To have inflicted the same miseries on their fellow believers and fellow sectaries would have been as blamable in the eyes even of these religionists as in those of a partisan of the principle of utility. For a man to give himself a certain number of stripes was indeed meritorious, but to give the same number of stripes to another man, not consenting, would have been a sin. We read of saints, who for the good of their souls and the mortification of their bodies have voluntarily yielded themselves a prey to vermin. But though many persons of this class have wielded the reins of empire, we read of none who have set themselves to work and made laws on purpose with a view of stocking the body politic with a breed of highwaymen, housebreakers, or incendiaries. If at any time they have suffered the nation to be preyed upon by swarms of idle pensioners or useless placemen, it has rather been from negligence and imbecility than from any settled plan for oppressing and plundering of the people. If at any time they have sapped the sources of national wealth by cramping commerce and driving the inhabitants into emigration, it has been with other views and in pursuit of other ends. If they have declaimed against the pursuit of pleasure and the use of wealth, they have commonly stopped a declamation. They have not, like Lycurgus, made express ordinances for the purpose of banishing the precious metals. If they have established idleness by a law, it has been not because idleness, the mother of vice and misery, is itself a virtue, but because idleness, say they, is the road to holiness. If, under the notion of fasting, they have joined in the plan of confining their subjects to a diet, thought by some to be of the most nourishing and prolific nature, it has been not for the sake of making them tributaries to the nations by whom that diet was to be supplied, but for the sake of manifesting their own power and exercising the obedience of the people. If they have established, or suffered to be established, punishments for the breach of celibacy, they have done no more than comply with the petitions of those deluded rigorists who, dupes to the ambitious and deep-laid policy of their rulers, first laid themselves under that idle obligation by a vow. The principle of asceticism seems originally to have been the reverie of certain hasty speculators, who having perceived, or fancied, that certain pleasures, when reaped in certain circumstances, have, at the long run, been attended with pains more than equivalent to them, took occasion to quarrel with everything that offered itself under the name of pleasure. Having then got thus far, and having forgot the point which they set out from, they pushed on, and went so much further as to think it meritorious 
to fall in love with pain. Even this, we see, is at bottom but the principle of utility misapplied. The principle of utility is capable of being consistently pursued, and it is but tautology to say that the more consistently it is pursued, the better it must ever be for humankind. The principle of asceticism never was, nor ever can be, consistently pursued by any living creature. Let but one-tenth part of the inhabitants of this earth pursue it consistently, and in a day's time they will have turned it into a hell. Among principles adverse to that of utility, that which at this day seems to have most influence in matters of government, is what may be called the principle of sympathy and antipathy. Footnote. The following note was first printed in January 1789. It ought rather to have been styled, more extensively, the principle of caprice. Where it applies to the choice of actions to be marked out for injunction or prohibition, for reward or punishment, to stand, in a word, as subjects for obligations to be imposed, it may indeed with propriety be termed, as in the text, the principle of sympathy and antipathy. But this appellative does not so well apply to it when occupied in the choice of the events which are to serve as sources of title with respect to rights, where the actions prohibited and allowed the obligations and rights being already fixed, the only question is, under what circumstances a man is to be invested with the one or subjected to the other, from what incidents occasion is to be taken to invest a man or to refuse to invest him with the one or to subject him to the other. In this latter case, it may more appositely be characterized by the name of the fantastic principle. Sympathy and antipathy are affections of the sensible faculty, but the choice of titles with respect to rights, especially with respect to proprietary rights, upon grounds unconnected with utility, has been in many instances the work not of the affections, but of the imagination. When, in justification of an article of English common law, calling uncles to succeed in certain cases in preference to fathers, Lord Coke produced a sort of ponderosity he had discovered in rights, disqualifying them from ascending in a straight line. It was not that he loved uncles particularly, or hated fathers, but because the analogy, such as it was, was what his imagination presented him with, instead of a reason, and because, to a judgment unobservant of the standard of utility, or unacquainted with the art of consulting it, where affection is out of the way, imagination is the only guide. When I know not what ingenious grammarian invented the proposition, delegatus non potest delegare, to serve as a rule of law, it was not surely that he had any antipathy to delegates of the second order, or that it was any pleasure to him to think of the ruin which, for want of a manager at home, may befall the affairs of a traveller whom an unforeseen accident has deprived of the object of his choice. It was that the incongruity of giving the same law to objects so contrastous as active and passive are was not to be surmounted, and that atus chimes as well as it contrasts with are. When that inexorable maxim, of which the dominion is no more to be defined than the date of its birth or the name of its father is to be found, was imported from England for the government of Bengal, and the whole fabric of judicature was crushed by the thunders of ex post facto justice, it was not surely that the prospect of a blameless magistracy perishing in prison afforded any enjoyment to the unoffended authors of their misery, 
but that the music of the maxim, absorbing the whole imagination, had drowned the cries of humanity along with the dictates of common sense. Footnote in footnote. Additional note by the author, July 1822. Add, and that the bad system of Mahometan and other native law was to be put down at all events, to make way for the inapplicable and still more mischievous system of English judge-made law, and by the hand of his accomplice Hastings was to be put into the pocket of Impey, importer of this instrument of subversion, eight thousand pounds a year contrary to law, in addition to the eight thousand pounds a year lavished upon him, with the customary profusion by the hand of law, see the account of the transaction in Mill's British India. To this governor a statue is erecting by a vote of East India directors and proprietors. On it should be inscribed, Let it but put money into our pockets, no tyranny too flagitious to be worshipped by us. To this statue of the arch-malefactor should be added, for a companion, that of the long-robed accomplice, the one lodging the bribe in the hand of the other. The hundred millions of plundered and oppressed Hindus and Mohammedans pay for the one. A Westminster Hall subscription might pay for the other. What they have done for Ireland with our seven millions of souls, the authorized deniers and perverters of justice have done for Hindustan with our hundred millions. In this there is nothing wonderful. The wonder is that under such institutions men, though in ever such small number, should be found whom the view of the injustices which, by English judge-made law, they are compelled to commit, and the miseries they are thus compelled to produce, deprive of health and rest. Witness the letter of an English Hindustan judge, September 1st, 1819, which lies before me. I will not make so cruel a requital for his honesty as to put his name in print. Indeed, the House of Commons documents already published leave little need of it. End of footnote in footnote. Fiat justitia ruat curlum, says another maxim, as full of extravagance as it is of harmony. Go heaven to wreck, so justice be but done. And what is the ruin of kingdoms in comparison of the wreck of heaven? So again, when the Prussian Chancellor, inspired with the wisdom of I know not what Roman sage, proclaimed in good Latin for the edification of German ears, Servitus servitutis non datur, it was not that he had conceded any aversion to the life-holder who, during the continuance of his term, should wish to gratify a neighbour with a right of way or water, or to the neighbour who should wish to accept of the indulgence, but that, to a jurisprudential ear, tus, tutis, sound little less melodious than atus, are. Whether the melody of the maxim was the real reason of the rule is not left open to dispute, for it is ushered in by the conjunction quia, reasons appointed harbinger, quia servitus servitutis non datur. Neither would equal melody have been produced, nor indeed could similar melody have been called for, in either of these instances, by the opposite provision. It is only when they are opposed to general rules, and not when by their conformity they are absorbed in them, that more specific ones can obtain a separate existence. Delegatus potes delegare, and servitus servitutis datur, provisions already included under the general adoption of contracts, would have been as unnecessary to the apprehension and the memory as, in comparison of their energetic negatives, they are insipid to the ear. Were the inquiry diligently made, it would be found that the goddess of harmony has exercised more influence, however latent, over the dispensations of Themis 
than her most diligent historiographers, or even her most passionate panegyrists, seem to have been aware of. Every one knows how, by the ministry of Orpheus, it was she who first collected the sons of men beneath the shadow of the sceptre. Yet, in the midst of continual experience, men seem yet to learn with what successful diligence she has laboured to guide it in its course. Every one knows that measured numbers were the language of the infancy of law. None seem to have observed with what imperious sway they have governed her maturer age. In English jurisprudence in particular, the connection betwixt law and music, however less perceived than in Spartan legislation, is not perhaps less real, nor less close. The music of the office, though not of the same kind, is not less musical in its kind than the music of the theatre, that which hardens the heart than that which softens it. Sostenutos as long, cadences as sonorous, and those governed by rules, though not yet promulgated, not less determinate. Search indictments, pleadings, proceedings in chancery, conveyances. Whatever trespasses you may find against truth or common sense, you will find none against the laws of harmony. The English liturgy, justly as this quality has been extolled in that sacred office, possesses not a greater measure of it than is commonly to be found in an English act of Parliament. Dignity, simplicity, brevity, precision, intelligibility, possibility of being retained or so much as apprehended, everything yields to harmony. Volumes might be filled, shelves loaded, with the sacrifices that are made to this insatiate power. Expertives, her ministers in Grecian poetry, are not less busy, though in different shape and bulk, in English legislation. In the former they are monosyllables, in the latter they are whole lines. To return to the principle of sympathy and antipathy, a term preferred at first, on account of its impartiality, to the principle of caprice. The choice of an appellative, in the above respects too narrow, was owing to my not having at that time extended my views over the civil branch of law, any otherwise than, as I had found it, inseparably involved in the penal. But when we come to the former branch, we shall see the fantastic principle making at least as great a figure there as the principle of sympathy and antipathy in the latter. In the days of Lord Coke, the light of utility can scarcely be said to have as yet shone upon the face of common law. If a faint ray of it, under the name of the argumentum ab inconvenienti, is to be found in a list of about twenty topics exhibited by that great lawyer as the coordinate leaders of that all-perfect system, the admission, so circumstanced, is as sure a proof of neglect as, to the statues of Brutus and Cassius, exclusion was a cause of notice. It stands neither in the front, nor in the rear, nor in any post of honour, but huddled in towards the middle, without the smallest mark of preference. Nor is this Latin inconvenience by any means the same thing with the English one. It stands distinguished from mischief, and because by the vulgar it is taken for something less bad, it is given by the learned as something worse. The law prefers a mischief to an inconvenience, says an admired maxim, and the more admired, because as nothing is expressed by it, the more is supposed to be understood. Not that there is any avowed, much less a constant opposition, between the prescriptions of utility and the operations of the common law. Such constancy we have seen to be too much even for ascetic fervour. From time to time instinct would unavoidably betray them into the paths of reason. 
instinct which, however it may be cramped, can never be killed by education. The cobwebs spun out of the materials brought together by the competition of opposite analogies can never have ceased being warped by the silent attraction of the rational principle, though it should have been, as the needle is by the magnet, without the privity of conscience. End footnote. By the principle of sympathy and antipathy, I mean that principle which approves or disapproves of certain actions, not on account of their tending to augment the happiness, nor yet on account of their tending to diminish the happiness of the party whose interest is in question, but merely because a man finds himself disposed to approve or disapprove of them, holding up that approbation or disapprobation as a sufficient reason for itself, and disclaiming the necessity of looking out for any extrinsic ground. Thus far in the general department of morals, and in the particular department of politics, measuring out the quantum, as well as determining the ground, of punishment, by the degree of the disapprobation. It is manifest that this is rather a principle in name than in reality. It is not a positive principle of itself, so much as a term employed to signify the negation of all principle. What one expects to find in a principle is something that points out some external consideration, as a means of warranting and guiding the internal sentiments of approbation and disapprobation. This expectation is but ill-fulfilled by a proposition which does neither more nor less than hold up each of those sentiments as a ground and standard for itself. In looking over the catalogue of human actions, says a partisan of this principle, in order to determine which of them are to be marked with the seal of disapprobation, you need but take counsel of your own feelings. Whatever you find in yourself a propensity to condemn is wrong for that very reason. For the same reason it is also meet for punishment. In what proportion it is adverse to utility, or whether it be adverse to utility at all, is a matter that makes no difference. In that same proportion also is it meet for punishment. If you hate much, punish much. If you hate little, punish little. Punish as you hate. If you hate not at all, punish not at all. The fine feelings of the soul are not to be overborne and tyrannized by the harsh and rugged dictates of political utility. The various systems that have been formed concerning the standard of right may all be reduced to the principle of sympathy and antipathy. One account may serve for all of them. They consist all of them in so many contrivances for avoiding the obligation of appealing to any external standard, and for prevailing upon the reader to accept of the author's sentiment or opinion as a reason for itself. The phrase is different, but the principle the same. Footnote. It is curious enough to observe the variety of inventions men have hit upon, and the variety of phrases they have brought forward, in order to conceal from the world, and if possible from themselves, this very general and therefore very pardonable self-sufficiency. One man says, he has a thing made on purpose to tell him what is right and what is wrong, and that it is called a moral sense, and then he goes to work at his ease and says, such a thing is right and such a thing is wrong. Why? Because my moral sense tells me it is. Another man comes and alters the phrase, leaving out moral and putting in common in the room of it. He then tells you that his common sense teaches him what is right and wrong, as surely as the other's moral sense did. 
meaning by common sense a sense of some kind or other which he says is possessed by all mankind the sense of those whose sense is not the same as the author's being struck out of the account as not worth taking this contrivance does better than the other for a moral sense being a new thing a man may feel about him a good while without being able to find it out but common sense is as old as the creation and there is no man but would be ashamed to be thought not to have as much of it as his neighbours it has another great advantage by appearing to share power it lessens envy for when a man gets up upon this ground in order to anathematize those who differ from him it is not by a sic volo sic jubio but by a velitus jubiatus another man comes and says that as to a moral sense indeed he cannot find that he has any such thing that however he has an understanding which will do quite as well this understanding he says is the standard of right and wrong it tells him so and so all good and wise men understand as he does if other men's understandings differ in any point from his so much the worse for them it is a sure sign they are either defective or corrupt another man says that there is an eternal and immutable rule of right that that rule of right dictates so and so and then he begins giving you his sentiments upon anything that comes uppermost and these sentiments you are to take for granted are so many branches of the eternal rule of right another man or perhaps the same man it's no matter says that there are certain practices conformable and others repugnant to the fitness of things and then he tells you at his leisure what practices are conformable and what repugnant just as he happens to like a practice or dislike it a great multitude of people are continually talking of the law of nature and then they go on giving you their sentiments about what is right and what is wrong and these sentiments you are to understand are so many chapters and sections of the law of nature instead of the phrase law of nature you have sometimes law of reason right reason natural justice natural equity good order any of them will do equally well this latter is most used in politics the three last are much more tolerable than the others because they do not very explicitly claim to be anything more than phrases they insist but feebly upon being looked upon as so many positive standards of themselves and seem content to be taken upon occasion for phrases expressive of the conformity of the thing in question to the proper standard whatever that may be on most occasions, however, it will be better to say utility. Utility is clearer, as referring more explicitly to pain and pleasure. We have one philosopher who says there is no harm in anything in the world but in telling a lie, and that if, for example, you were to murder your own father, this would only be a particular way of saying he was not your father. Of course, when this philosopher sees anything that he does not like, he says it is a particular way of telling a lie it is saying that the act ought to be done or may be done when in truth it ought not to be done the fairest and openest of them all is that sort of man who speaks out and says i am of the number of the elect now god himself takes care to inform the elect what is right and that with so good effect and let them strive ever so they cannot help not only knowing it but practising it if therefore a man wants to know what is right and what is wrong he has nothing to do but to come to me. It is upon the principle of antipathy that such and such acts are often reprobated on the score of their being unnatural. The practice of exposing children, established among the Greeks and Romans, was an unnatural practice. 
Unnatural, when it means anything, means unfrequent, and there it means something, although nothing to the present purpose. But here it means no such thing, for the frequency of such acts is perhaps the great complaint. It therefore means nothing, nothing, I mean, which there is in the act itself. All it can serve to express is the disposition of the person who is talking of it, the disposition he is in to be angry at the thoughts of it. Does it merit his anger? Very likely it may, but whether it does or no is a question which, to be answered rightly, can only be answered upon the principle of utility. Unnatural is as good a word as moral sense, or common sense, and would be as good a foundation for a system. Such an act is unnatural, that is, repugnant to nature, for I do not like to practice it, and consequently do not practice it. It is therefore repugnant to what ought to be the nature of everybody else. The mischief common to all these ways of thinking and arguing, which, in truth, as we have seen, are but one and the same method, couched in different forms of words, is then serving as a cloak and pretense and element to despotism. If not a despotism in practice, a despotism, however, in disposition, which is but too apt, when pretense and power offer, to show itself in practice. The consequence is that with intentions very commonly of the purest kind, a man becomes a torment either to himself or his fellow-creatures. If he be of the melancholy caste, he sits in silent grief, bewailing their blindness and depravity. If of the irascible, he declaims with fury and virulence against all who differ from him, blowing up the coals of fanaticism, and branding with the charge of corruption and insincerity every man who does not think, or profess to think, as he does. If such a man happens to possess the advantages of style, his book may do a considerable deal of mischief before the nothingness of it is understood. These principles, if such they can be called, it is more frequent to see applied to morals than to politics, but their influence extends itself to both. In politics, as well as morals, a man will be at least equally glad of a pretense for deciding any question in the manner that best pleases him without the trouble of inquiry. If a man is an infallible judge of what is right and wrong in the actions of private individuals, why not in the measures to be observed by public men in the direction of those actions accordingly, not to mention other chimeras? I have more than once known the pretended law of nature set up in legislative debates in opposition to arguments derived from the principle of utility. But is it never, then, from any other considerations than those of utility that we derive our notions of right and wrong? I do not know. I do not care. Whether a moral sentiment can be originally conceived from any other source than a view of utility is one question. Whether upon examination and reflection it can, in point of fact, be actually persisted in and justified on any other ground, by a person reflecting within himself, is another whether in point of right it can properly be justified on any other ground by a person addressing himself to the community is a third. The two first are questions of speculation. It matters not, comparatively speaking, how they are decided. The last is a question of practice. The decision of it is of as much importance as that of any can be. I feel in myself, say you, a disposition to approve of such or such an action in a moral view, but this is not owing to any notions I have of its being a useful one to the community. I do not pretend to know whether it be a useful one or not. It may be, for aught I know, a mischievous one. But is it then, says I, a mischievous one? 
examine, and if you can make yourself sensible that it is so, then, if duty means anything, that is, moral duty, is your duty at least to abstain from it, and more than that, if it is what lies in your power, and can be done without too great a sacrifice, to endeavour to prevent it. It is not your cherishing the notion of it in your bosom, and giving it the name of virtue, that will excuse you. I feel in myself, say you again, a disposition to detest such or such an action in a moral view, but this is not owing to any notions I have of its being a mischievous one to the community. I do not pretend to know whether it be a mischievous one or not. It may be not a mischievous one, and may be, for aught I know, a useful one. May it indeed, says I, a useful one. But let me tell you, then, that unless duty and right and wrong be just what you please to make them, if it really be not a mischievous one, and anybody has a mind to do it, it is no duty of yours, but, on the contrary, it would be very wrong in you to take upon you to prevent him. Detest it within yourself as much as you please, that may be a very good reason, unless it be also a useful one, for you are not doing it yourself. But if you go about, by word or deed, to do anything to hinder him, or make him suffer for it, it is you, and not he, that have done wrong. It is not your setting yourself to blame his conduct, or branding it with the name of vice, that will make him culpable, or you blameless. Therefore, if you can make yourself content that he shall be of one mind, and you of another, about that matter, and so continue, it is well. But if nothing will serve you, but that you and he must needs be of the same mind, I'll tell you what you have to do. It is for you to get the better of your antipathy, not for him to truckle to it. And footnote. It is manifest that the dictates of this principle were frequently coincide with those of utility, though perhaps without intending any such thing, probably more frequently than not, and hence it is that the business of penal justice is carried upon that tolerable sort of footing upon which we see it carried on in common at this day. For what more natural or more general ground of hatred to a practice can there be than the mischievousness of such practice? What all men are exposed to suffer by, all men will be disposed to hate. It is far yet, however, from being a constant ground. For when a man suffers, it is not always that he knows what it is he suffers by. A man may suffer grievously, for instance, by a new tax, without being able to trace up the cause of his sufferings to the injustice of some neighbour who has eluded the payment of an old one. The principle of sympathy and antipathy is most apt to err on the side of severity. It is for applying punishment in many cases which deserve none. In many cases which deserve some, it is for applying more than they deserve. There is no incident imaginable, be it ever so trivial, and so remote from mischief, from which this principle may not extract a ground of punishment. Any difference in taste, any difference in opinion, upon one subject as well as upon another. No disagreement so trifling which perseverance and altercation will not render serious. Each becomes in the other's eyes an enemy, and, if laws permit, a criminal. This is one of the circumstances by which the human race is distinguished, not much indeed to its advantage, from the brute creation. Footnote. King James I of England had conceived a violent antipathy against Arians, two of whom he burned. 
This gratification he procured himself without much difficulty. The notions of the times were favourable to it. He wrote a furious book against Vorsius for being what was called an Arminian, for Vorsius was at a distance. He also wrote a furious book called A Counterblast to Tobacco against the use of that drug which Sir Walter Raleigh had then lately introduced. Had the notions of the times cooperated with him, he would have burned the Anabaptist and the smoker of tobacco in the same fire. However, he had the satisfaction of putting Raleigh to death afterwards, though for another crime. Disputes concerning the comparative excellence of French and Italian music have occasioned very serious bickerings at Paris. One of the parties would not have been sorry, says M. d'Alembert, to have brought government into the quarrel. Pretenses were sought after and urged. Long before that, a dispute of like nature, and of at least equal warmth, had been kindled at London upon the comparative merits of two composers at London, where riots between the approvers and disapprovers of a new play are, at this day, not unfrequent. The ground of quarrel between the big Andians and the little Andians in the fable was not more frivolous than many a one which has laid empires desolate. In Russia, it is said, there was a time when some thousands of persons lost their lives in a quarrel, in which the government had taken part, about the number of fingers to be used in making the sign of the cross. This was in days of yore. The ministers of Catherine II are better instructed than to take any other part in such disputes than that of preventing the parties concerned from doing one another a mischief. End footnote. It is not, however, by any means unexampled for this principle to err on the side of lenity. A near and perceptible mischief moves antipathy. A remote and imperceptible mischief, though not less real, has no effect. Instances in proof of this will occur in numbers in the course of the work. It would be breaking in upon the order of it to give them here. It may be wondered, perhaps, that in all this no mention has been made of the theological principle, meaning that principle which professes to recur for the standard of right and wrong to the will of God. But the case is, this is not in fact a distinct principle. It is never anything more or less than one or other of the three before-mentioned principles presenting itself under another shape. The will of God here meant cannot be his revealed will, as contained in the sacred writings, for that is a system which nobody ever thinks of recurring to at this time of day for the details of political administration, and even before it can be applied to the details of private conduct, it is universally allowed, by the most eminent divines of all persuasions, to stand the need of pretty ample interpretations. Else, to what use are the works of those divines? And for the guidance of these interpretations, it is also allowed that some other standard must be assumed. The will, then, which is meant on this occasion, is that which may be called the presumptive will. That is to say, that which is presumed to be his will, by virtue of the conformity of its dictates to those of some other principle. What, then, may be this other principle? It must be one or other of the three mentioned above, for there cannot, as we have seen, be any more. It is plain, therefore, that, setting revelation out of the question, no light can ever be thrown upon the standard of right and wrong, by anything that can be said upon the question, what is God's will? we may be perfectly sure, indeed, that whatever is right is conformable to the will of God. But so far is that from answering the purpose of showing us what is right, that it is necessary to know first whether a thing is right, 
in order to know from thence whether it be conformable to the will of God. Footnote. The principle of theology refers everything to God's pleasure. But what is God's pleasure? God does not, he confessedly does not now, either speak or write to us. How then are we to know what is his pleasure? By observing what is our own pleasure, and pronouncing it to be his. Accordingly, what is called the pleasure of God is, and must necessarily be, revelation apart, neither more nor less than the good pleasure of the person, whoever he be, who is pronouncing what he believes or pretends to be God's pleasure. How know you it to be God's pleasure that such or such an act should be esteemed from? Whence come you even to suppose as much? Because the engaging in it would, I imagine, be prejudicial upon the whole to the happiness of mankind, says the partisan of the principle of utility. Because the commission of it is attended with a gross and sensual, or at least with a trifling and transient satisfaction, says the partisan of the principle of asceticism. Because I detest the thoughts of it, and I cannot, neither ought I, to be called upon to tell why, says he who proceeds upon the principle of antipathy. In the words of one or other of these, must that person necessarily answer, revelation apart, who professes to take for his standard the will of God. End footnote. There are two things which are very apt to be confounded, but which it imports us carefully to distinguish. The motive or cause which, by operating on the mind of an individual, is productive of any act, and the ground or reason which warrants a legislator or other bystander in regarding that act with an eye of approbation. When the act happens, in the particular instance in question, to be productive of effects which we approve of, much more if we happen to observe that the same motive may frequently be productive, in other instances, of the like effects, we are apt to transfer our approbation to the motive itself, and to assume, as the just ground for the approbation we bestow on the act, the circumstance of its originating from that motive. It is in this way that the sentiment of antipathy has often been considered as a just ground of action. Antipathy, for instance, in such or such a case, is the cause of an action which is attended with good effects. But this does not make it a right ground of action in that case any more than in any other. Still farther, not only the effects are good, but the agent sees beforehand that they will be so. This may make the action, indeed, a perfectly right action, but it does not make antipathy a right ground of action. For the same sentiment of antipathy, if implicitly deferred to, may be, and very frequently is, productive of the very worst effects. Antipathy, therefore, can never be a right ground of action. No more, therefore, can resentment, which, as will be seen more particularly hereafter, is but a modification of antipathy. The only right ground of action that can possibly subsist is, after all, the consideration of utility which, if it is a right principle of actions and of approbation in any one case, is so in every other. Other principles, in abundance, that is, other motives, may be the reasons why such and such an act has been done, that is, the reasons or causes of its being done. But it is this alone that can be the reason why it might or ought to have been done. Antipathy or resentment requires always to be regulated, to prevent it doing mischief. To be regulated by what? Always by the principle of utility. The principle of utility neither requires nor admits of any other regulator than itself.
End of chapter 2